Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Top secret documents at CSIS reveal a sophisticated strategy from China to influence the 2021 Canadian federal election. I have been saying for years, including on the floor of the House of Commons, that China is trying to interfere in our democracy, in the processes in our country, including during our elections. And of course, is the voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Conservative leader Pierre Poilier, for his part, accusing the PM of trying to cover this up. Justin Trudeau knew about this interference, and he covered it up because he benefited from it. He is perfectly happy to let a foreign authoritarian government interfere in our elections as long as they're helping him. Report in the Globe and Mail says classified records from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, show that China wanted another liberal minority government in 2021, and it worked to help defeat conservative politicians that it considered unfriendly to Beijing. Phil Gursky is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Phil, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, Rick. Nice to talk to you again. How are you? Yeah, long time no chat. Thanks for coming on board today. Uh, I'm good. Uh, Mr. Trudeau might be in a different uh, place, though, because documents apparently show that Chinese diplomats used strategies in, in the 2021 election campaign to allegedly defeat candidates viewed as unfriendly to Beijing. How could they have possibly done this? Well, as the report indicates, and I should say, Rick, for you and your listeners, just to reiterate, um, I'm more of a terrorism specialist. That's what I worked at at CSIS and counterterrorism. But I had colleagues that were looking at China, and I was certainly aware of the types of investigations and reports we were putting out. Uh, the report makes it quite clear that China, China through its diplomatic corps, i.e. through the embassy in Ottawa and the number of consulates it has around the country, were identifying Canadians that it could use to spread information or disinformation to try to affect the election in, in 2021, probably 2019 as well, and maybe even other ones. The main point here, Rick, is not whether they affected you know the actual results of the election, but the fact that they were doing it. And that CSIS have been warning about this, not just for the past year or two years, but for the past decades, we've been saying these things to the Canadian government. And it doesn't seem to have resonated. And I think that's the frustration here is that the intelligence was quite solid. And it doesn't seem clear that the government took that intelligence for what it was worth and 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 used it to, you know, to imp implement some kind of action or policy. Prime Minister says he wants CSIS to find out how these top secret documents were leaked and that uh, security within CSIS needs to be reviewed. Is, is it likely that a review is forthcoming? Hard to say. Uh, you know, I spent 32 years, Rick, uh, both with CSIS and CSC, and it's drummed into you. It's tattooed on your forehead. Thou shalt not take secret documents home with you <laughs> or leak to journalists, uh, you know, present company included, unfortunately. Um, 
It's not clear this came from CSIS. It could have come from what we call a customer, i.e. an official who would have received the document, him or herself. And so for the prime minister to say that CSIS has to you know, tighten up its regulations, well, does he know that CSIS leaked it or was it was it another office? So we don't know that just yet. You know, um, when this kind of thing becomes public, not surprisingly, there will be a reaction. I mean, I'm sure CSIS will come up with some kind of statement in the days to come. And, you know, I... I understand the frustration at the leak. I don't support it because I was, like I say, I spent more than three decades trying to protect this information. What worries me, and, and when you work in intelligence, Rick, the two most important things are sources and methods. And if something gets into the public domain, if it affects those sources and methods, it can affect your intelligence collection. And that's never a good thing when you work as a spy. Our guest on The Roy Green Show, Phil Gursky, President of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Is, is Canada a big target for this kind of foreign interference? Hard to say, Rick. Um, I'm sure we're not the only ones. Um, you know, election interference is not merely a, a Chinese uh tactic. The Russians do it as well, I'm pretty sure. I'm sure other, you know, nefarious actors do as well. I hate to, I'm a proud Canadian like you, Rick, but um it'd be pretty hard for me to say we're at the top of the totem pole. Can I use that expression in 2023? I, mean, I, okay. I think you're okay. I think you're um yeah I don't think we're we're the priority, but the, the again as my earlier statement, the fact remains it did happen. And that China did target it. So they must have felt it was necessary. So China cared enough about Canada that they got their diplomats and other, you know, um, people in this country to advance its interests. So even if we're not the most important nation, they did expend effort in this regard. Here's where it could get even more interesting is that because we know MPs spend a lot of time meeting with Canadians, maybe a lot, not a lot of time, but sometime meeting with Canadians and because some of them have said, listen, I, I really don't understand how to spot foreign interference or foreign influence. Could politicians be asked to curtail their meetings with the public going forward? I hope not. One thing CSIS is doing, Rick, and I have this on good authority, CSIS is reaching out to the government, uh, to politicians at various levels to explain exactly what you said. What is foreign interference? What does it look like? When should my spidey senses go off that something is happening here that is not in Canada's interest and may in fact point to some attempt by a foreign power to influence us here? So the service, as we call CSIS, is doing what it can. Uh, the, the bottom line is there are people listening. Do people want to hear from CSIS when it comes to this regard? Because it's the only agency looking at this. These are the experts. These are the professionals that do you know, uh, look at foreign interference under Section 2B of the CSIS Act. So when CSIS comes a calling, you better start listening because they know what they're talking about. Phil Gursky, we have a couple more minutes with Phil. He's the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and former CSIS analyst. Does Canada have to fire back at China and, and, and make a statement uh, more than what the prime minister has already said? Oh, most definitely. I mean, what, what he said, again, to shift the blame to CSIS for this leak, if in fact CSIS was responsible for it, rather than saying we've got a problem in Canada, is an egregious performance on behalf of the prime minister. If diplomats are found to be doing this, Rick, they can be PNG'd, uh, declared persona non grata. You boot them out of the country. They're not Canadians. They don't have status here. You invite retaliatory efforts by the Chinese in Beijing for our diplomats, but that's the way diplomacy works. Now, I think a much stronger message has to be be uh, conveyed. And as I said, this is not new. We've been talking about this for 30 years in Canada. And CSIS has been very 
consistent in its messaging. And 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 those of us who work in intelligence uh, were often frustrated that the, the intelligence that we were collecting and analyzing and processing and, and wrapping up with a bow at you know at, at great expense and great effort was being ignored. And I'm sorry, um, the prime minister's statements notwithstanding, this is one more case where the intelligence was ignored. Before I let you go, I have to get your sense on the Emergencies Act ruling from Justice uh, Rouleau uh, on Friday. Um, you know, he pointed the finger at uh, policing first and foremost to to drop the ball. What kind of response are we going to get or what kind of changes are we going to see to make sure this doesn't happen again? Well, you always learn from things that don't go well, Rick. I mean, that, that's that's life, right? Whether you're in intelligence or law enforcement or just a general citizen. If, if things uh, could have been done better, they should have been done. But I just want to say just one minor one, one point here. This was not a national security threat. CISA said that quite boldly in its testimony. So it's it's still open to me whether or not the act should have been used. I think the answer is no. But there's definitely lessons to be learned here. And uh, professionals, they take that to heart. And they, they amend their policies and their practices to do better in the future. Hey, remember when Justin Trudeau was caught on video singing at the Corinthia Hotel, the the lavish Corinthia Hotel in London, England, on the eve of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral? out the prime minister was likely belting out that tune or perhaps another classic from the uk rock icons queen while staying at the corinthia to the tune of six thousand dollars a night it's actually more than that we don't know for sure if it was him i should say yet because after some great reporting by the toronto sun's brian Lilly. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation now seeking legal action against the federal government to reveal who in fact stayed at this wildly expensive hotel during the Queen's state funeral. Joining us now to break it all down is Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, welcome to the Roy Green Show. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Before we get into the, into the legal action part of this, as the person atop the CTF, your blood must be boiling when you hear about stories like this. <laughs> oh, it absolutely is boiling. I mean, in the first place, right? Remember when this happened? This was during the Queen's funeral. This was back in September of 2022. Well, when uh, the Trudeau government, when Mr. Trudeau, when some of the former governors general, when the governor general was in England and when someone was staying in a $6,000 per night hotel room, that includes a complimentary butler service, you have their constituents back home here in Canada struggling to afford milk or ground beef or even deal with the price of eggs, right? So talk about tone deaf, but then the insult to injury is that the government is trying to pull out all the stops uh, to block Canadians from finding out who it was who stayed in the $6,000 per night hotel room. Now, after the Governor General, Mary Simon, came out and said, hey, look, it wasn't me. Well, it no longer really takes you to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out who it was who stayed in that room. However, this is a matter of transparency. They spent our money. They need to come clean about it. By the way, Governor General Mary Simon was quite quick to say, no, don't look at me, guys. I did not stay in the river suite. Yeah, she didn't want to. She didn't want to have to deal with this one. I mean, she had her own spending scandal that she had to deal with. Remember that week long trip to the Middle East where she spent nearly six figures 
her and her entourage on fancy airplane food. So she wasn't willing to step into this one. So even before we get to the the legal route, there was something else the Canadian Taxpayers Federation did, and that was file an access to information request. And you did get something back from the government, but it wasn't quite what you were looking for. Tell us about it. No, it sure wasn't. So we filed a very, very simple ATIP, okay? Very simple access to information question. Who stayed in the $6,000 per night hotel room? Should have been simple enough, right? Well, wrong. (laughs) They sent us back a response. They even wrote the name down in the response. Then they blacked it out. They blacked out the response. We got a redacted response to a very simple question of who stayed in that hotel room. So now you're going down the legal route. Tell us about the legal action. Absolutely. So we already have lawyers that have filed a legal challenge with the information commissioner because the reasons that the bureaucrats gave us for this redaction, they don't pass the sniff test. Let me walk you through it. So they gave us two reasons. They cited Section 16 and Sections 19 of the Access to Information uh, Act as reasons why they couldn't provide us the information. Now, those sections are supposed to be about security concerns and personal information exemptions. Now, here's why they don't pass the legal sniff test. Let's let's start with their security claims. For starters, <laughs> the Queen's funeral already happened. It was five months ago. Okay, so unless the government is worried about the Terminator traveling back in time to London, England, I think we can <laughs> safely disclose who it was who stayed in that hotel room on our dime. They might also be concerned about Marty McFly. I don't know. I know I know. there's a Back to the Future 4 coming out, so they might be worried about that. But the fact of the matter is there are many other hotels to choose from with many available rooms at a much lower rate. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Now, you, you mentioned some of the great digging by the Toronto Sun. Now, another thing that they did, they went one step further and they compared hotel prices, right? Because look, we're not saying that the governor general or the prime minister should be staying by the motel at the airport. That's not what we're saying. But however, the sun showed through their own homework that we could have saved money by putting them up at the Four Seasons or the Shangri-La. OK, so when you can save money at the Four Seasons, you really know that the delegation bear no expense. But hold on a second, because I want to just get back to another point here about the so-called personal information exemptions that these bureaucrats cited. Well, for starters, the law is very clear that these types of expenses don't fit under that personal information exemption. Because when you're on taxpayer business, when you're using taxpayers' money, then you have a legal responsibility to be accountable and transparent about it. And oh, by the way, the government bureaucrats that sent us back the redacted access to information response, all they had to do was ask the individual in question if they could disclose the information. So did they ask that individual? Did that individual say no? Those are some of the questions that we're asking. Got a couple more minutes with Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, as we try to find out who stayed at this $6,000 a night hotel room in London, England during the Queen's funeral. And you bring up the, the point that everyone is probably screaming at the radio ad is, this is important because this is our money. This is taxpayers' money that is being used to put up whoever it was in a hotel, 6,000 bucks. Yeah, per night, per night, per night, right? And, and, and even beyond the dollar figure, which is crazy when you look at back what was what is going on in Canada right now, where you have us taxpayers, many of whom are worried about losing their homes with rising mortgage payments, many of whom 
are wondering, do I get the jug of milk tonight or do I get the family size package of ground beef? Okay. But this is a matter of principle. This is a matter of principle. Bureaucrats are always trying to bend the rules to withhold information from taxpayers. And we're not going to let that fly, especially not this time. And unfortunately, we're actually seeing this become the rule, not the exception, where they waste their money, then they try to cover it up. I mentioned the governor general back in March, her entourage spent nearly 100K on fancy airplane food. Well, then the governor general misled Canadians about it. She claimed that this was, uh, you know, like normal airline meals that we have. Well, I don't know about you, Rick, but every time I'm on WestJet or Air Canada, I don't see Beef Wellington on the, on the menus, yet that's exactly what they enjoyed on their way to the Middle East. And also, you had bureaucrats at a parliamentary committee about the governor general's expenses uh, telling our members of parliament that they didn't have the receipts, misleading them about the extravagant meals. So once again, this whole issue that we're seeing is becoming the rule, not the not the exception. And that's wrong. First time around when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was elected to his post, you know, he said that his government was going to be the most transparent ever. What, what has happened to that? Well, it seems like they're kind of shoving that promise out the window, doesn't it? Because you're right. Right before the 2015 election, he said that Canadians deserve the most open and transparent government in the world. And I agree with that. We do. We do. And you know what? I don't I wish we didn't have to uh, do this legal challenge. I would love right now for whoever it was, whoever that could have been who stayed in that six thousand dollar per night hotel room to take three seconds out of their Sunday, go on Twitter and come clean with taxpayers. Right. That's best case scenario. What's the timeline for this legal challenge? How does it all work? Okay, that's a great question. So right now we're just waiting to see what the information commissioner says. Now, we believe that the information commissioner will rule in our favor. And then it's up to the bureaucrats in global affairs. Do they publish the documents or do we have to take them further into court? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. War may sometimes be a necessary evil. But no matter how necessary, it is always evil, never a good. We will not learn how to live together in peace by killing each other's children. Jimmy Carter, the 39th president of the United States, who is now receiving hospice care at his home in Plains, Georgia. The 98-year-old, the longest-lived American president, occupied the White House from 1977 to 81 after serving as Georgia's senator and governor in the uh, 60s and the early 70s. He may be the one American president who is more well-known for what he did, what he did after his presidency 
than during his time in power. Arthur Milnes is a fellow of the Queen's University School of Public Studies, a former speechwriter to Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and the author of several books, including those about Prime Minister John Turner and U.S. Presidents George H.W. Bush, Franklin Roosevelt, and Jimmy Carter. Arthur, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, having me. Um, kind of sad, but, uh, you know, um, President Carter's had quite a life, and uh, he's not gone yet. When I say the name Jimmy Carter, I mean, you wrote a book about the man. What memories spring to mind? Just, he's probably the, um, he would hate if he heard me say this. He would hate this. But um, probably the rest of my life, I don't think I'll ever meet uh, such a profoundly moral man. How? I'm, um, not um, uh, generally uh, very uh, over-religious. But uh, in all my hours with President Carter, one uh, when you're alone with him, you do get the sense that you're with a very moral, spiritual man. He was a really a, a little known governor from Georgia who won the White House. How did he do it? You know, it's incredible. It couldn't happen today. The uh, short version is that after his service as governor, um, he and his wife every Sunday would get into separate station wagons, and drive through primary states. And in particular, because uh, they had no money, and in particular, Mrs. Carter, a uh, better campaigner than Jimmy is, would uh, go to a small town in a place like Iowa, find out where the local newspaper was, walk in, ask to see the editor, you know, with this heavy Georgia accent, and uh, say, say to the editor, my husband's going to be president. And they would say, of what? And she would say, of the United States. And they thought, this woman with the Georgia accent, that it was such a crazy story that they would put her on the front page. That's literally how things started. And by the time the more prominent Democrats, uh, the Ted Kennedys and Hubert Humphreys, etc., thought they would put their mind to the uh, Democratic nomination, uh, Jimmy Carter had already had it sewn up. He was the president of the United States from 1977 to 81. How would you describe his presidency? I would actually, um, one of the great, uh, because of uh, how, how long President Carter is living, what's been wonderful in recent years to see his presidency reevaluated. And I've always argued that though it was one term, if we just, for example, looked at foreign policy, just foreign policy, in one four-year four term, this man personally, and he put his presidency at risk to do it, uh, achieved the Camp David Accords between Egypt and Israel. And it's basically one of the only peace treaties Israel has ever had with its neighbors, one of its neighbors, and it still stands today, 40-plus uh, years later. It's remarkable. Uh, the second thing would be the Panama Canal Treaties. Uh, that was a cancer waiting to explode in Central America. And President Carter dammed the torpedoes and did the Panama Canal Treaty, uh, which has uh, removed that cancer from U.S. Uh, relations with Central America. It's a remarkable achievement. Plus, he uh, uh, negotiated a SALT II nuclear arms reduction treaty with the Soviet Union, uh, the first, of course, had been Richard Nixon, but uh, President Carter was second. 
Congress didn't approve it, uh, uh, the Soviets abided by it for the most part. So that's just foreign policy. And if you look at some of uh, recent presidents would kill, even if they had eight, uh, eight years would have killed to have records like that. It's a remarkable legacy. We have not- for Canada, for Canada, um, he has never forgotten. In fact, I've seen him tear up and cry when he speaks about it. He's never forgotten the role Canada and Canadians, uh, uh, Ambassador Ken Taylor and his wife in particular, the role that Canada played uh, Canada played in helping smuggle and keep and uh, keep six Americans safe after the American embassy in revolutionary Iran uh, was taken over. You have heard of inflation, haven't we all? You've heard probably about greedflation and even shrinkflation. Well, how about tipflation? All right, everybody cough up some green for the little lady. Come on, throw in a buck. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? Do you know what these chicks make? Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. New research shows that Canadians have reached a tipping point when it comes to tipping. And most would scrap the whole gratuity system altogether, just, just pay a little more money to the people that are offering the service. Well, the Angus Reid Institute has found that tipflation has become a key pain point for consumers. We are getting tipped to death, or at least at least being asked to tip virtually everywhere we go. I was at a nearby pizza place just yesterday for lunch. Put in my order at the counter, and the machine asked me if I wanted to tip. And I'm thinking, tip? For what? Ordering my food? No! Dave Korzynski is a research director with the Angus Reid Institute and joins us now on The Roy Green Show. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. That's the first time I've ever been played in by Tarantino, so I appreciate that. <laughs> My pleasure. What did your research uncover? Well, like you said, the, the broad sense that people feel like tip, tipping is getting out of control, and I think that it's kind of compounded by the fact that everything is more expensive. So now when you go out, the you know the burger at the restaurant that used to be sixteen ninety nine is is you know nineteen ninety nine now and maybe you're okay paying for that for the experience but then when you get the tipping machine and instead of twelve fifteen eighteen for the suggested tip it now says eighteen twenty four thirty I think for a lot of people that's uh, it's getting a little overwhelming and you know eighty three percent say that they think that too many places are asking for tips these days and when you ask about people's personal experiences. Two-thirds say that the number of times they've been prompted to tip when they're out and about uh, and the amount that they're they're being asked to tip has increased in the last couple of years. So it's something that people are really noticing. So we're being hit with a double whammy. A, we're being asked to tip more money and more often. Yeah, it's, um, it's a real challenge. And I think especially for people you look at the data by income levels, um, the number of people who are noticing this and and um, who are upset about it tend to be people who are on the lower end of the, the income spectrum. If you ask about places that they tip, um, you know, people with lower incomes tend to tip less often. So if you're somebody who maybe doesn't have the financial means to always be generous with your extra cash when you're when you're out uh, and about 
being asked for it all the time, I think has this kind of compounding guilt effect. Like you said, when you're, when you're just picking something up and, and, you know, all, all the, the person has done in, in the back is the job that they're being paid for. Uh, I think a lot of people look at that and say, that's not what this was designed for. That's not the gratuity system. If these individuals actually need to be paid more, they think that it should be done uh, through the wage system and, and less so on just constantly increasing the amount that, that people are being asked to tip. Is this tipflation phenomenon being driven or has been driven by the pandemic? I think that in large part it has. You know, if we have some 2016 versus 2023 data, um, which is um, obviously a few years before. Unfortunately, we didn't see this coming and, and do it in 2020, which would have been a great marker. But I can give you some data for that 20, that seven-year gap. So when you ask people um, a question about how much they tipped when they were um, out at a, a restaurant, just kind of the standard traditional experience. When you think about tipping, I think this is the one that comes to mind to most people is just go to a restaurant, you get the bill, and usually it's 15% is the suggested amount or the tr- traditional amount. And in 2016, we had 44% of people, the largest group, said that they tipped uh, 15% or less. Uh, that number has dropped in half to 23%, so from 44 to 23. The number who have done 16 to 19% has gone up 11 points from 41 to 52. And this is the one that, that really caught me off guard was the number of people who have tipped 20% or more the last time they went out for dinner has gone from 8 to 21% over that period. So uh, one in five people are tipping 20% or more. So wow. this is great for people who are uh, working in the industry and, and are, you know, getting the benefit of, of the tips. But it is a challenge for consumers. And I think that's why we see some movement when you ask people if they prefer the tipping model or the service included model. Uh, again, looking at that 2016 to 2023 period, when we asked seven years ago, people actually preferred the tipping system by, by six percentage points. Now people prefer the service included model by 27 points. So it's way up in terms of people think that it's time to switch to a service included model where you're just paying people better wages so that we don't have to pass this on to the consumer and rely on people's generosity. Maybe we could just price it into the system. A lot of people are, are on board with that. We're talking about tipping and tipflation with Dave Korzynski, Research Director at the Angus Reid Institute. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Let's stay on that topic. Do you get the sense or can you foresee this baked in tip as the go forward plan that retailers, the service industry is going to want to employ? It's it's tricky because one of the things that people say, too, is that they think that um, having the tipping system in place is allowing employers to underpay their employees. So they're not actually realizing the value of their labor and we're kind of subsidizing it. But to, to the consumer to allow people who are working in the service industry um, in those types of areas where, where tips are helping to sustain them. Uh, there's a big sense that the employers are the ones that, that should be capturing that. Um, so, you know, when you look at who would have to be in charge of switching that model, it is the employers. So if what Canadians believe is true is actually uh, part of the equation, it's hard to imagine shifting away from this especially with the um, you know, the cost of running a restaurant or running a business going up because of inflation, because of the supply chain challenges. It's, it's not like one group is 
kind of uh, exempt from the challenges. I think everybody's having a, a difficult time in their own area of the economy. So it's hard to just point a finger and say that it's, you know, the restaurants that are taking advantage of this, or um, maybe a little bit easier to say that it's uh, Uber or some of the tech companies that people tend to point fingers at um, in terms of the, the, uh, the pricing model there. So it kind of looks at, it depends where you're looking, and it it is really one of those things where people would like to see it change, but I'm not sure that the, the powers that be are, are necessarily um, ready to, to shift over. But maybe with public opinion going this way, it, it will start to be piloted by uh, more places around around the country. In addition to tipflation, in which we're seeing more Canadians being asked to not only tip more, but more often, you also found that Canadians are reporting more instances of tip creep. That sounds creepy. What the heck is it? Yeah, so that's what you're talking about and when you're just getting prompted at places that you might not have been expecting. Um, so I think people are just getting surprised sometimes where they go out and maybe you go to a, a local shop and all of a sudden there's an option to tip and you're wondering, you know, what, what am I tipping for? I thought I was just here to buy a product. Um, so that's what we find is that uh, people are noticing that more places are asking for tips. And, and I think that's why the, the sentiment seems to be that we, we moved from a place where this was to show appreciation for a service that was rendered on top of the kind of standard what you would expect. So if you're, you're going to get a meal, uh, if you get really good service, uh, uh, you know, the, the waiter or the hostess, whoever treats you really kindly, you have a nice conversation, maybe they anticipate a couple of your needs, that's when I think traditionally people were thinking, okay, well, that's when I, I throw in a little tip. Now I think people are getting this, uh, you know, please tip 25%, and they're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by that. And then when you're getting it at uh, coffee shops and then at, when you get your hair cut and when basically any time you're out in the community, that's what we're talking about with tip creep. And that's why you've got that 83% saying that uh, they think that too many places are asking for tips and 78% saying they're not sure that tipping is really about showing appreciation for a job well done anymore. They feel like it's more just an expected part of the experience now. It's built into the equation, um, and that's, that's alienating some people. So we've got to remember that this is a really important source of income for people who are in the, the service economy, but it's also, I think Canadians are looking for a little bit better of a balance, and and feeling like they're, uh, you know, footing the bill for what what could be paid for by the the employer. We have another minute with uh, Dave Korzynski, research director at the Angus Reid Institute here on the Roy Green Show. Your research also found that d- despite tipflation and tip creep, that few customers actually say that customer service has improved during this time. Yeah, only thirteen percent say that they think that the customer service has improved, and that that tends to align with. Um, a lot of the kind of staffing turnover, I mean, just think about airports over the, lo- the last couple of years and a lot of the turnover bringing in new staff and some of the challenges that that's created. 71% disagree that, that customer service has improved. So uh, that group would say that it has actually worsened. Um, and uh, I think that that is one of the other additional challenges here. So if you're being asked to pay more, 
you're expecting that somebody's going to do a kind of a, a really over the top job, but a lot of people are having trouble just getting the, the baseline service that they're looking for. So a lot of interesting uh, changes over the last couple of years, for sure. It's a whole new world. I'm not sure I like it, Dave. Yeah, you know, it's a, carry cash. I think that's the one way <laughs> for overcoming this is if, you, if you've got cash, you tend to be able to just pick a solid number and you don't have to worry about the percentages. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 